0: Thanks, Mike. Uh, There's an AP English teacher. His name is Mr. Lambert. He was a favorite at the high school that he taught out. Students were signing up for his class just the way he could do it. Um, And so he decided he was going to give an exam. It was going to be a little bit different than what he would normally do, but because it's an AP English class, he was going to have them do a writing exercise. The way it started is he said, I'm going to put a, a, a piece of artwork on the screen and I want you to give me 500 words and I want you to interpret it, deal with it emotionally, respond to it as you feel fit, right? And so the picture that he put up was this one right here. It's called the Wheat Field and Crows. Now, the guy who's writing this said, Hey, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I have no emotional connection to a wheat field. I have no emotional connection to crows. All I know is that I like my teacher. I didn't ask any questions. I just started waxing eloquent about what emotions I might have as I looked at this piece of artwork. He gets through, he turns in his 500 word essay, and Mr. Lambert says, Hey, let's try this again. Let's try it again. Let's do 500 words on this same piece of artwork, how it stirs you emotionally as you interpret it, as you look at it. He goes, but this time I want you to know that this was the very last painting of Vincent Van Gogh right before he took his life. And then he said, go. 500 words. At this point, the guy who was in the class, he wrote these words. He said, The wheat field with crows, not knowing about its context in Van Gogh's life, made it just a picture to me. No different from Starry Night or a comic from the far side. It was just a collection of line squiggles and artistic flourishes designed to evoke something untethered to real life. But, once Mr. Lambert made me aware that this picture was incredibly tethered to real life, how could that context not suddenly be the most important thing about the picture? It's the most important thing. Instead of seeing it as just line squiggles and artistic flourishes, you could make the case that this picture was a cry for help, a suicide note, both or neither. But regardless of where you land, clearly this contextualization demands a reconsideration of the initial assumption. Soon as I said that, it changes the way you look at it, right? Context, it's not everything, but it is incredibly important, isn't it? It's incredibly important. Today, I'm going to read a passage to you, and it is screaming for context screaming for it. I'm going to be really honest with you. Most of the time, I try to hide this. I try to get up here, and I try to give you context without knowing that I'm giving you context. I try to take the passage, and I try to give you the context of where it sits in the, the book that we're studying right now. We're in the book of Ephesians. I try to help you see how all of Ephesians is tied together, and so I typically try to do that. And then there are other times that I say, hey, how can I make this passage not just relevant to the the one letter we're studying, but to the entire book we call the Bible? Like, how does it fit in that context? And then sometimes I feel like it's my responsibility for you to understand how the verse relates or those scriptures relate to the original audience as they would have heard it. Because context is so important. And so today I'm not gonna try to do that artistically. I'm not gonna try to do that and weave it in without you knowing it. I'm just telling you right up front, I'm gonna try to give you as much context as we can today. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. We've been started, we started Ephesians way back there before. Christmas. If, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chairs in front of you. I think you're going to want to hold one today. If you got the app on your phone, Ephesians chapter 6, right? I, I think it's always worthwhile to have it in your hand, but maybe today a little bit more so than others. And so we got two more Sundays. I got today and then next week we're going to wrap this book up and then we're plowing toward Easter. So let me read it for us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling, and then sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Just screaming for context already. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whenever, whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no, or without threatening them, because you know that their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So I, I really want to try to put these five verses. Um, in the context of Ephesians, uh, I want to put slaves in the context of household. I want to put work and authority in context so that we can walk out of here with some very firm things that we can apply. Um, it's a pretty tall order, so I'm going to pray for us. Is that all right? Um, yeah, Holy Spirit, I ask this every week, but I'm I'm going to do that in front of my friends here. Just that you would be the better teacher this morning. Um, yeah, difficult passage, and um, <clears throat> I don't I I don't know why, Lord, it has sat on me like a ton of bricks this week, and so I pray that um, you would relieve that weight and that you would you would be the better teacher. You would clearly communicate today. What you would want us to hear, what you would want each and every person individually to hear, you are more than capable of doing that and more. So, um, yeah, we yield the floor to you. We do, Lord. I love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, slaves and masters isn't just on its own. It actually sits in what we call the household code. Uh, we've butchered this the last few weeks. When I say butchered, I mean, we've just preached it out of text, out of out of order. So last couple of weeks, John's preached on on the, the first part of this section of the household code on, on parents and children, and then children obeying parents. And then way back there on Valentine's Day, we handled all those verses on husbands and wives. And then to ease the pain, we gave all the ladies a gift on the way out, right? That's how we did that. And so what we've done is we've taken the household code that should be read from Ephesians 5.21, I would probably argue from like 5.18 all the way to Ephesians 6.9, and we haven't read it all together. And so now we've done a little parenting, we've done a little marriaging, and now we've got this slaves and masters just sitting here, right? So something's got to be done with it. So I want you to know that it doesn't just sit there on its own. It's actually inside the the whole household code starting there with uh, with wives and husbands and then with uh, parents and children and then we have slaves and masters. Those three couplets. This isn't the only place it shows up in your Bible. Paul does it again in Colossians chapter 3. He takes all three of these couplets and he talks about them again. He's going to do the same thing in in Timothy. We'll read a little bit about that here in a moment. He's going to talk about the household code there. Titus addresses it. Peter addresses it. It shows up probably five times in your Bible in some way, shape, or form. That's important for you to know. Like, this isn't just Paul shooting from the hip here like, hmm, who do I apply the first three chapters to? Husbands and wives. Who's the next group? Parents and children. It's not the way it's working. He He's got a clear plan here. He's he's using these couplets multiple times throughout the Bible. Where does he get this? Now, this is probably, for me, the most intriguing part of this passage is that this is not unique to Paul. This isn't the first time someone sitting in a home in Ephesus would have heard this use of these couplets before. This isn't the first time. Matter of fact, if they were Jewish sitting in that home, Jews had a household code. If they were Greeks, Greeks had a household code. Rome, Stoics, you name it, they all had it somewhere along the lines. And this is what I think Paul did. I think Paul took a household code that was very normative for culture, and as he applied it in Ephesians 5 and 6, he redeemed it with Jesus Christ. And it's my job to to show you that today. Matter of fact, I want to show you and read to you a few household codes that you would have had prior to Paul, folks like Aristotle, or philo or some others i'm not going to read a ton they're all out there but i'm going to put them on the board they're a little wordy you get it you know this is stuff from 2000 years ago but i want to show it to you so that you know like i'm not just pulling this out of thin air this would have been common language of the time first one is aristotle he says this of household management we have seen that there are three parts One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. There they are, right there, right off the bat, written before Paul came on the scene, those three couplets. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal Meaning, progeny, I'm sending this down the line. The rule over his wife, constitutional. Meaning, we're really not married for emotional connection. We're really not married for companionship. When you got married 2,000 years ago, it was to better the family business, right? Constitutional, contractual, basically. And then he says, for although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full grown is superior to the younger and more immature. I'm not telling you I agree with Aristotle. Ladies, I just want to make sure we're all clear here. I'm just showing you the language from 2,000 years ago. Husband, wives, master, slaves, parents, and children. Okay, let me show you another one. It's a little rougher. A little rougher, but Aristotle goes on again. He says this, The freeman rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female and the man over the child. Now, clearly, we have authority. We have probably called tyranny here, right? He says, Although the parts of the soul are present in all three, slaves, women, and children, they are present in different degrees. For the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it's without authority. And the child has, but it's immature. So it must, be necess- it must necessarily be with the moral virtues also. All may be supposed to partake of them, but only in such a manner and degree as required by each for the fulfillment of his duty. Now, I don't probably have to read too much here. I don't have time to go back to Ephesians five twenty one and read all of those passages, but hopefully you see something very different from Ephesians five twenty one to six nine from what I just read. And listen, I got them stacked, stacked. You notice several things: the woman wasn't spoken to, the child wasn't spoken to, the slave wasn't spoken to. Most of these, as you read them, there seems to be no dignity whatsoever to anyone other than the father, the one who is over his home here. Um, You'll notice that this this is not only no dignity, but it it almost comes across, not almost, it comes across. When you read these other ones, it, it is this, that there is no moral capacity for a woman or a child or a slave to act on their own. There is that clear lack of moral capacity. When Paul writes, he doesn't write like that. When Paul writes, he addresses the woman and the father. He, he addresses the husband and the wife, the father and the children, the master and the slave. He makes them all moral agents capable of following this. Like there is dignity in it. Clearly there is dignity in it. So I wanted to show you the difference there. Now... The bigger issue for me is why in the world would Rome and the Greeks and the Jews and the Stoics care so much about these household codes? Why would they care to write it over and over and over again? And the reason is this. The reason is, and I'm going to show it to you. They thought that the home was a microcosm of the larger Roman society. They thought this, as the home goes, so goes Rome. So we've got to make sure our households are right so that the big household of Rome stays intact. Matter of fact, this is just for free. Some people think Paul put this in there so that when the Romans would read Ephesians or Colossians, they would see, ah, those Christians aren't trying to mess up our code. They're going to keep everything together. That is how precisely they wanted the home to be taken care of. Let me, let me read you this quote. It'll be up there. It says this. Every household, this is Aristotle again. Every household is part of a state. And these relationships are part of the household. And the excellence of the part must have regard to that of the whole. The excellence of the part has regard to the whole. Strong home, strong Rome. I may not agree with everything Aristotle had to say, but that ain't half bad, is it? Strong home, strong Rome. Now, what in the world is Paul doing with a household for Christians? I think Paul's doing the exact same thing. I think he is saying that your home Marriage, parenting, economic interactions. He's saying all of that is a microcosm of a household as well. It's just not a microcosm of Rome. It's not a microcosm of Greek society. It's a microcosm of what we would call the church. I want to show it to you in your Bible. First place we're going to see is Ephesians 2. I told you you want your Bible in your hand, Ephesians 2. This is Paul. We talked about this way back over there before Christmas. So I know you don't have the book memorized, but I want you to follow with me. Look at what Paul says, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. He says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. There it is. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You've been redeemed and adopted. You're a new man. You've been been set up with Christ. All of those beautiful words, you've been made alive and made new. The, The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And as a result, we are members of God's household. And what is this household built on? Verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Caesar isn't our head. Jesus is. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary into the Lord. First place right there in Ephesians, household of God. The church is a household of God. And these household codes are a microcosm of what the church should be. Let me show it to you again, another one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It'll be on the screen. Listen to these words. He says, coming to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves are living stones and being built into a spiritual house. For a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a living stone and you are being placed and making a building and that building is the house of God. This is just an old piggly wiggly. This is not the house of God. You are the house of God and us together collectively are the house of God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Let's keep going. Just to show you, I, I, I want to make sure you're with me here. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's a little long. This guy's a little wordy, but let me show it to you. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all of God's household. Uh-oh, there it is. Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful, but, verse 3, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. You thought Moses was legit. Jesus is way more legit because he built the thing. It's on his death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus is the builder of it. Then he goes on, verse 4, Now every house is built by someone, but the one who has built everything is God, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony for what would be said in the future. Us. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household. If we hold to the courage and the confidence of our hope, we we are that household. We are that household. We are that household. Last time, I'll show it to you for Paul. Last time, I think it's his most explicit one. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I love this. I write these things to you hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, if I lose my life in prison here, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household. (laughs) That's why I'm giving you this. You got to know how to act. This is God's household. This is the church. This this thing's fledgling. It's brand new. You got to know how to act. And what is the household? Which is the church of the living God. And what is the church of the living God? The pillar and foundation of truth. What is the pillar and foundation of truth? What is the building block of truth? Us. Us. The church, the household of God. And so when Paul takes husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters, and he says, this is your household, but your household is a microcosm of the big household called the church. Strong church, strong home. As the homes go, the church goes. Just in case you think I'm on my own here, I'm going to stand on a guy named John Stott, well-respected theologian. This is his words on the book of Ephesians. For the divine family, the household of God, for the fine family ceases to be a credible concept if it is not in itself subdivided into human families which display God's love. The church ceases to be a credible concept when we go out of here and we don't live as microcosms of the church. And we don't share God's love. That's what happens. People want to see the credibility of the church. Listen, Give Hope is great and it, 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 it does some of that. Our generosity is amazing, Mission Lexington. But you don't want to know where the real credibility is? The real credibility is on a ball field. The real credibility is how you're going to treat your boss or your employees tomorrow. The real credibility is what you're going to say to your wife. The real credibility is how we treat our children. The real credibility is in that. That is the credibility for the church. That is weight. And I just want us to feel that for a minute. And he goes on and he says, what is the point of peace in the church if there's no peace in the home? and i know this this runs counter to everything we think because we are so individualistic here in the West and especially in America that we're going to go home and we're going to close the garage door and we're going to consume and consume and consume and we're going to think my relationship with my wife or the lack thereof is not going to affect anybody or the fact that I go here and she goes there and the kids go there and we don't ever do anything together and when we do are out in public like it doesn't matter what people see it doesn't matter what people think like this is my own home and when I go Go to church, that's where my church life is. No, 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 no. The credibility of the church rises and falls on the way we live it out in our primary relationships. Now I, I guess that for me is I mean, like it is stifling the weight. Can I just tell you that personally? It's stifling. I'm not real sure Paul's real concerned about giving you a how-to and how to go to work tomorrow with this passage. Or, or a one, two, three steps on how to raise successful children. I think he's more concerned with, man, Jesus Christ had better be at the center of our lives so that when people see our primary relationships, they see that Jesus Christ in the church is credible. It's credible. Um, So I'm looking at that, and you're probably thinking, Russell, you're doing a great job of dancing around the real subject this morning because you hadn't talked about slaves yet. (laughs) I'm going to give it my best shot here, okay? It's my best shot. First of all, let me just talk about home for a second, If home for us, if I say home, I've really just kind of boiled it down to the people that we live with. This is what we do. We read our Bible, and we take what we do and what we relate to, and we read it into the text. You hear household, and this is what you think of, my wife or my husband and my children, because that's who you live with. Some of you might have some other people living with you, stay with you momentarily or for a short time. But my guess is, is if I said, hey, how many of you live with your immediate family, you would all say, that's us, right? And that's what we do, and that's right. But the home in Rome was bigger than that. It was bigger than that. Yes, you would have had your wife, and I already told you it was mainly contractual. You would have also had your children, but if I were the father of my home, the only children I would count would be the male's. The females would belong to her. And then everybody else in the house are all the people that work for me slave or free. They would have all been in the house, all there. Even the children, you talk about one big happy family, they would have all been there. And when you look at the architecture of a Roman home or a, a home in Greece or that even a home, when you think about like the walls of, of these ancient Near East towns and how the the, the the courtyard and all of this stuff was sprawling and the rooms off of it is because everybody had to have a room and we all lived together and we were there we call that a fictive family a family of choice the people we choose to live with we just live with our wife and kids or spouse and children or folks that are immediate to us but that's not how it was then if I ask you to tell me about your family you would tell me about your spouse if you're married if you're not you would tell me about your mother and father If you don't have kids, you might talk about your siblings. If your kids have left the house, you probably start talking about grandkids or what your grown kids are up to, right? That's how we talk about it. That is not the concept for Rome. So for them, slaves and masters were there. Let's talk about slavery just for a second. Um, I'm not here to make this out like it is anything that is great or way better than the antebellum slavery of the South that is going through your mind right now, but I do want to say this. It is not that kind of slavery. It's not that kind of slavery. It doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it good, okay? It doesn't make it good. But it isn't where we we got on ships and crossed the ocean and took people that looked different from us and treated them terribly and forced them to worry... Golly, I can't. Anybody else with me on that? It's not that, but it's it's still not great. It's not good. It wasn't based on race, so you go into a home in Rome, and what you would see is probably maybe everybody had the exact same skin color. But this person over here is in slavery because they sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't make it on their own. Another person's in slavery because their parents sold them into slavery because mom and dad just couldn't make it happen, so I just got to sell this kid into slavery to get him off my my payroll, if you will. Somebody's in slavery because some dad, some father of the family looked at his wife, and when the wife presented a baby girl to him, he said, I don't want that baby girl. Go put that baby girl on the trash heap outside of town. And they would, but then there were slave traders who would come pick up that baby girl, raise them until they got to a certain age, and then sell them into slavery. On one end, at least their life was saved. On the other, they were sold into slavery. Other slaves would have been because they were captured in war or some conflict. If there's anything redeeming about it, I mean, if you can redeem it in any way, shape, or form, is the there was hope that in Rome, you you could buy your freedom. Um, there there was this hope that you could get free and get an education and even become a member or uh, a citizen of Rome. You, you had that. Um, matter of fact, Paul in Corinthians he looks at the the slaves and masters as he has this conversation and he tells the the people who are slaves he says, hey, if you can get free, do it. Go go do it. Earn your freedom. Make that happen. And if not, and I. I hate this, but this is what you have to, this is the the authority you have to live under. But he was trying to tell him, hey, go get it. You have an entire book of your Bible written to a guy named Philemon who had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus comes to Paul, and Paul says, hey, I got to send you home. But when he sends him home, he sends him home with this letter to Philemon and says, hey, um, I know he's a slave, but will you welcome him back as a free man? Will you do that as a brother in Christ? That'd be kind of cool, right? So there was that opportunity, but at the end of the day, owning someone is just wrong. Can I just say that just clearly as I can? It's just wrong. Um, And just in case we think that this is no longer an issue, it is still very much an issue. 23 million, I think, of the stats that I saw that are in some sort of slave issue right now so I know we look at this and think goodness I'm glad that was a really long time ago it's it's not it's not doesn't take much to go to a third world country and watch people enslave themselves to others or think about women trafficking or the like I'm going to end there but obviously this isn't just a past issue when I see this word slave this is the word I think of Let me put slavery in context now. I think of corruption. I think of corruption. Work is a divine gift from God. It was given to us in Genesis chapter 1. When God looked at Adam and Eve, he made it clear to them that they had a job to do and a will to obey. Name the animals, bear fruit and multiply, rule over the earth. They had a job to do. Work is given by God. I know some of you aren't wanting to hear that, but work is given by God. It is given. Our problem is, is we corrupt it. The minute Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their marriage was corrupted, childbearing was corrupted, and work was corrupted. Remember, God looked at them and says, You're gonna work it, but you're gonna work by the sweat of your brow and with thorns and thistles. And you may not work in thorns and thistles, but you know what corrupted work looks like, don't you? You know what corrupted work looks looks like. Work is hard. You've had a Monday on a Friday. Students, you've tried to turn something in. It's just everything's right. And then when you press enter, you get the spinning wheel of death. That is work, and it's corrupted. It's corrupted. I don't care what we do, what job you're in. We face it all the time. Some of us are dreading going to work tomorrow because we have a a crummy boss. Some of us dread going to work tomorrow because you hate your job. Whatever. It's corrupted. So when I see the word slavery, I think of corruption. And I think all we have done as mankind all these years is we've just helped corrupt it by doing things like slavery. Um, Just just for a moment, I want to talk about this. I want to read the passage again and... I'm going to try to do it without the idea of this whole slaves and masters thing. I just want you to think about where's the corruption of work in here. Get it back in verse 5. Slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. We corrupt work because we don't want to do it in a sincere way. We just want to do it. Get the job done. Who cares if we didn't dot every I or cross every T? Just get her done. On to the next one. Next one. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men. We corrupt work by being lazy. Only working when people are watching. We corrupt this. This is us. This is what we do. We corrupt it. We corrupt work when it says serve with a good attitude as to the Lord, not to men. It's corrupted when we just, we're in a bad mood and we make everybody else around us get in a bad mood. You corrupted it for yourself and now thank you, you corrupted it for the rest of us. And then it's corrupted in verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves the same without threatening them. Just corrupt it again. Just lord it over people. Corrupt it. So when I think of this passage I think of the word corruption at its ugliest and then I think of corruption at its its kind of least offensive ways laziness insincerity lording it over corruption when I read the household code from 521 to 69 I also see authority and submission I see authority and submission, I want to put a authority in its context, and then we'll be done. Um, authority is also given by God. In Genesis 1, the world was formless and void. It was chaos, and, G- and God divinely ordered it. And when he divinely ordered it, he put man in authority over it, and then he would constantly putting authority throughout mankind. When man tried to subvert that authority by building a massive tower to the heavens so that they could be like God, God made sure that they couldn't do that. It's been a constant battle of man wanting to usurp God's authority and God-given authority over us. We all move in and out of authority-submission relationships every day. We all do it. We all do it. There are times that I'm the authority, and then there are times I'm under authority. Sometimes that can happen within a minute, and it just depends who walks in the room. Right? Teachers have authority over the room. Principal walks in. Who's the authority now? You might be the boss, and everyone answers to you at work, but as soon as you get in your car, you're under authority. Of the South Carolina Transportation Department. We may not like it, but you're under authority. It's just the way it works. Some of you don't act like you're under authority, but that's... (laughs) We're in and out of it constantly. Constantly. You're going to be in some sort of authority and position when you sit down to order, and you might be in a servant position when you volunteer somewhere. It doesn't matter. We move in and out of it. So when we think about authority from this passage, I mean, again, what God has divinely ordained... Has been corrupted. But I want to read this passage again. And I want you to see the authority. Because this is what Paul is getting at. And this is for every person in the room. We are always supposed to see the real authority behind the authority. We're always supposed to see the real authority behind the authority. Let me show it to you. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your human master's authority with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to who? The real authority behind the authority. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, authority. But as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart, the real authority. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord, real authority, and not to men, just the authority. Verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours, real authority, is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. I wonder what it would be like if we walked out of here into this world, into work relationships and into authority submission relationships always recognizing the authority behind the authority. That way I work not just to that guy or gal, but I work to the Lord because I know who the authority is behind the authority. And I wonder how it might help us treat people when we're in authority knowing that there's a real authority right here. Real authority, right here behind me. Um, all of that authority talk makes me think is the one who is in complete and total authority is Jesus Christ. And every Sunday, we give you an opportunity to come and take the bread and juice and to remember the price that was paid for his authority to be grabbed and to be seized and to be recognized. So listen to these words. God demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power, dominion, and every title given not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of the one who fills all. All things in every way. If we could always recognize the authority behind the authority and instead of trying to corrupt work, figure out how to redeem it. If we could love our our spouses and love our kids in a way that it would lend credibility to the church. Man, wouldn't that be different out there? It's my last thought and I'll be done. My wife and my kids were sitting right here on the front row this this morning in this service. And it is so, so simple. But I have felt this conviction all week. As I love Jesus, the real authority, so goes the way I love my wife. And as I love Jesus, so goes the way I love my kids. And as I love Jesus, so goes the way that I love other people above me or below me. We agree on that? Let's love Jesus so we can love people so that the church gets more and more credibility. You pray for us. Uh, Father, um, I've already prayed it. I'm going to pray it again. Holy Spirit, I need you to, to clean this up and do your job and do what you do best, which is teach and inspire and convict and, and bring to light. And so, Lord, I pray you'd do that. Um, Lord, I pray that as we sing and as we come and take this bread and juice and remember the, the price that was paid so that Jesus would be lifted high and made much of, and we would remember he is the authority, he is the one we do everything for, we live, work, and have our being for him, we, we do all for your glory through Jesus Christ, so Lord, I pray that that would be on the forefront of our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray for our homes, married and single, um, kids or grown kids, grandkids, empty nesters. I pray for our work. I pray, Lord, it would all be done in such a way that brings you honor and shows the church to be the truly magnificent thing that it is, the body of Christ. That's what I ask, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name. Amen.